All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. The Bible says, why don't we read this out loud together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Let's read that again out loud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And everyone say amen to the word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our understanding to have revelation so that we might know more perfectly who he is. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you, Lord, for this Bible study that we are marching through together. I pray that each and every one of us will be students tonight, ready to hear, ready to receive with meekness. Lord, I believe that is the key, that we, Lord, are humble in our spirit, that we are teachable in our spirit so that we might receive it it is the word that is able to save our souls. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. Amen. God bless you. you. may be seated. Again, so thankful for each and every one of you that are here tonight. So glad to see my friend Jared. Uh, we've, we've had a few phone conversations. And he and his wife and their little one, amen, are just such a beautiful family. We're glad they're here tonight. So uh, you may have heard the word trinity before. Um, maybe it is the Holy Trinity or in a song, the Blessed Trinity. Or, or maybe you've seen Trinity Lutheran Church or whatever, fill in the blank, Trinity Church or a Trinity, a school named Trinity. Or, or how about here in the Quad Cities, a hospital named Trinity, right? Well, it stands to, uh, to ask this question, what is the doctrine of the Trinity. And so that would be the, the first blank. If you're wanting to fill in the blanks with us tonight, that's your first blank. What is the doctrine or the teaching of the Trinity? Now, we've, uh, I'm going to reference back to, to our last couple weeks lesson a couple of times, but uh, I don't want to repeat myself. But essentially, we talked about how if we're going to discover who God is, we cannot rely upon our own thoughts, ideas, or opinions. But in all honesty, uh, the Trinity teaching is one of man's attempts to explain the nature of God. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you could say that an earthworm, you know, you go out uh, in the night and you see a, a night crawler on the ground and that night crawler looks up at you, could you imagine what kind of ideas he might come up with if he tried to explain what he's seen when he sees you, if that's even possible? You know, do they have eyes? But, but you know, man will try to explain God and, and this is really one of man's attempts to explain God outside of Scripture. Not using scripture. Not, we'll explain. Essentially, the Trinitarian doctrine asserts that God exists in three separate, distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. Each of the three are, in, are independent personalities that are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with the other two. Now, 
this is not, you could fact check me, I promise. You could, you could go to any, uh, any site and, and look up what does Trinity mean? What is the doctrine of the Trinity? And, and you would pull phrases just like this out of it. There is God the Father, who they would refer to as the first person in the Trinity. God the Son, who is the second person in the Trinity. Trinity. And God the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. Now, the Trinitarian concept of God has been compared to one law firm uh, with three partners, or one senate with three senators, or one club with three members. So God is one, but exists in three separate, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal persons. The word Trinity, now this might shock some, but the word Trinity actually never not once, appears in the Bible. So if, if you've never read the Bible, but you've heard the word Trinity before, you might just suppose and assume it's, it's in the Bible, but it actually is not. Search it from cover to cover. And, and you would actually discover that the original apostolic church did not believe nor teach the idea of a Trinity. And I'm not just saying that, but actually Trinitarians would say that, and we'll discover that later in this lesson. We'll expound on this. Now, the official doctrine of the Trinity is formally expressed in the following terms. Now, keep in mind that none of them are actually expressly in the Bible. So let's look at that. They refer to the triune God. Uh, they refer to separate and distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. And there are quotations along each one of those because those are uh, directly derived from Trinitarian teachings. Now, the Trinitarian perception of God as three separate persons. And so, again, if you're trying to follow along, uh, the word Trinity is never appears in the Bible. That's the second and then the next three separate persons. Now, these separate persons, they would describe, they work together to form one God. And in other words, the Trinitarian view of God is like a committee of, of, of people or persons or individuals who make up one authority, and the authority is therefore known as God. Now, the Trinitarian dogma, uh, dogma is uh, synonymous with the word belief or set of beliefs. The Trinitarian belief was actually not developed uh, for approximately 300 years after the apostles died, after the last of the apostles died, which would have been John, uh, church history shows, John was the last of the apostles, the same guy that wrote John the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. But 300 years after his death, approximately, came about the Trinitarian belief. For the first three centuries, from Pentecost uh, till 300 years later, Christianity adhered to strict monotheism, which we talked about in previous lessons about how there is a belief that there is one God that was inherited from the Hebrews or the Jewish people, the Israelites. In fact, it's the most foundational teaching of Scripture. We read Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, and it says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, monotheism, monotheism is the belief that there is only one God, one God. The doctrine is reiterated or taught over and said over and over again for emphasis in both the Old and the New Testament. It is God's declaration of his unchanging being or essence. Now, our text was Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. It says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What's important to note is that Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest or the first commandment, 
Guess what he said? <laughs> he quoted Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, it says, One of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that, he, that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, What is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all, meaning the foundational commandment, the one upon which everything else rests, the entire word of God rests on this commandment. What is that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now to the Jewish people, the Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema. Uh, what, what is a little bit ironic here is that we had a Jewish man that was here on Sunday. He had a prayer shawl and everything. And uh, he actually, in conversation with some people, actually referred to Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. And, uh, and I, from my understanding, Brother Perry uh, began to quote uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 in Hebrew. And the man, his name's Michael, actually finished it in Hebrew, um, which would be Shema Yisrael Adonai Elokenu Adonai Echad. Now, you like that? You, you like how that, that just came out? Like, <laughs> yep, that's good. <laughs> now, what is interesting, and this kind of refers back to previous lessons, you notice the word Adonai in there twice, Right? Uh, if you read uh, most English versions of the Bible, um, in, in English, it would be all caps, L-O-R-D. In fact, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, when we had it on the screen, it had that, all caps, L-O-R-D, which from our previous lesson, we learned how that is representing the Old Testament designation of the name of God, which is Yahweh or Jehovah, which that is how one of two ways we could guess that it's pronounced because about three or four hundred years before uh, the New Testament, they stopped pronouncing the name of the Lord and substituted the word Adonai for that. And the reason why is because they were afraid that they would take the name of the Lord in vain. So again, the name of the Lord being Yahweh, what it says actually in Hebrew would be, uh, but they, they don't want it to be there when they read the Pentateuch in Hebrew. It would be Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohenu, Yahweh, Echad which means, hero Israel, Yahweh, the I am, the self-existent one, who is our God, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the I am, is one. So when, when God revealed himself by this name to Moses from the bush that was burning yet not consumed, and Moses asked, what is your name? He said, I am that I am. It is that name of the Lord that is declared in Deuteronomy, where Moses, who spoke with God, received this from the Lord as the foundational or first commandment. He said, Yahweh, or I am, is one. He is our God. Yahweh is our God, the Jewish people, and he is one. Now, to the children of Abraham, there has only been and can only be one God. Now, to press this point, I'm going to quote for you from a book called The Pentateuch and Half Torahs. So this is a compilation of the Pentateuch, which penta means five. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, which are also known as the books of Moses or the Torah. 
So this book, the Pentateuch and half Torahs, is actually a book for Judaism or those who are Orthodox or practicing Jews that are still looking for the Messiah. Do you understand? So this book uh, by J.H. Hertz uh, provides Hebrew text, provides the English text, and provides commentary on the text. The commentary on the text says this. The sublime pronouncement of absolute monotheism was a declaration of war against all polytheism, or the belief that there are many gods. In the same way, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, excludes the trinity of the Christian creed as a violation of the unity of God. This is actually why many Jews have a hard time becoming Christians. Because when they hear the majority of Christians explain who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is, they look at Christians and say that's polytheism or that's the belief that there are many gods. And to the Jews, there is only one God. And that's what is being said here. Essentially, the Shema is excluding even the idea that the Christians might be right in that Jesus was the Messiah because of the way that they describe the Godhead. Now, in regard to the Old Testament disclosure of the Godhead, noted Jewish theologian and rabbi, again, this, this is not an apostolic author here. This is not a oneness Pentecostal. He's a rabbi, Stanley Greenberg, of the Temple Sinai of Philadelphia, writes this. Trinitarian Christians, now Trinitarian, the word is there in brackets, meaning that it's not in the original text. But the reason that we insert it in our curriculum into this quote from that book is because we understand that the Jews have a hard time with the majority of Christians that proclaim a holy trinity. And this is why. Christians are, of course, entitled to believe in a Trinitarian conception of God, but their effort to base this conception on the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, must fly in the face of the overwhelming testimony of that Bible that they claim to use. Hebrew scriptures are clear and unequivocal on the oneness of God. The Hebrew Bible affirms the one God with unmistakable clarity. Monotheism, or belief in one God, an uncompromising belief in one God is the hallmark of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The unwavering affirmation of Judaism and the unshakable faith of the Jew. Under no circumstances can a concept of a plurality of the Godhead or a trinity of the Godhead ever be based on the Old Testament. That's how rabbis feel about Christianity, at least in regards to a Trinitarian teaching of the Godhead. The Bible speaks so loud on the subject of the Godhead that there is only one God, and it is unthinkable to imagine. So here's these rabbis speaking in commentary of the Old Testament, saying it's impossible. It's impossible. We know the text. We read it in Hebrew. It's impossible to get the Trinitarian concept of God from the Old Testament. Now, it's really hard to stomach the idea that if that's true, and it is, that the Old Testament is strictly monotheistic, strictly speaking, that there's only one God, it's unthinkable to think that we turn the page to the book of Matthew, and all of a sudden God changes. He changes his identity, his nature, his idea, or who he is. 
when Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament in most Bibles, it says this, I am the Lord, I change not. Just to make sure you don't misunderstand anything that's about to unfold here soon, I want you to know, I'm God, the God of the Old Testament. I'm not going to change. Not for anyone or anything. Now, to attempt to divide the one almighty God into three persons, we, we would look at it as tritheism or the belief that there's three gods. This is also known as polytheism or belief in multiple gods. The New Testament actually speaks in harmony with the Old Testament on the subject of the Godhead. The Godhead. Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6, there's one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, proclaims there's only one God. He's revealed himself in three different unique manifestations or modes to mankind. But each manifestation is the one true and living God. God is not a committee of three separate persons, but God is one. In fact, the term Holy One of Israel, look it up. Do a word search. Holy One of Israel. It's found repeatedly in Scripture. The Holy One, not the Holy Three. Just as water can display itself as liquid, ice, vapor, God reveals himself to mankind in three specific modes or manifestations. So here's your next three blanks. He is father to us in creation, in creation. He is father to us in creation. He's the invisible spirit, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But yet he's the son in redemption, in our redemption, the visible, tangible expression of God, willing to subject to limitations of human flesh. And yet he is also the Holy Ghost in regeneration. Regeneration. Now, we use the word regeneration because it kind of flows with creation, redemption, regeneration. A simple way of saying new birth. Okay? When you are filled with the Spirit, you are regenerated. Mean you are born again. Now, the Trinity belief or dogma versus... What should we fill in the blank here with? How about this? The creed of a church organization. No, don't write that down. <laughs> what, what, should we, what, what, what should we bring into the ring or the arena with the Trinity belief? How about my ideas and philosophies? No, let's not do that. How about this? The Bible. <laughs> the Bible. When we examine the Trinitar uh, Trinitarian doctrine in comparison with the scriptural record, numerous inaccuracies or inconsistencies begin to appear. So let's examine a few of these. Number one, the Trinity doctrine teaches that the Father and the Son are two separate, distinct persons. Two separate, distinct persons. Now, the following scripture is often used actually to support this idea or concept. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. For though there be, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, 
the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Now, initial glance, you might be confused by the scripture, feel like maybe there's some contradiction here to what we've been saying, but as with most scriptures, the true meaning is clearly revealed when we look at it a little bit more close. So first of all, the scripture, if you look at it, is actually, is Paul specifically speaking against the idea that there are multiple gods or that there are many gods or gods many. So for starters, I mean, you've got you've to take that into consideration. The reason the scripture even exists is because Paul was combating the idea that there are many gods. Secondly, Paul is telling us that there's one God, one Elohim. Remember, that is an Old Testament Hebrew word, which means God. Now, Elohim could be a generic, it's, it's a title, just like you're a father, a son, a daughter. So it doesn't just necessarily apply to Jehovah or Yahweh or the God of Israel, but the here it's saying that there is one Elohim, there's one God, and it goes on to say there is one Lord Jesus, or if we could remember back to our previous lesson, what does Jesus mean? Jehovah has become our salvation. This is where the power of the revelation that is in the name needs to be remembered. So there's one God, and there is one Jehovah, or Lord, who has become our Savior. He is speaking of two manifestations of one God. For there is one God, and there's one mediator. The two manifestations of the same Lord. Listen to what Jude says in Jude 1.4. There are certain men crept in unaware, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. They're ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or lawlessness, unrestraint of desire. And they deny, what do they deny? They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does the Bible say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It's not professing that there are two Lords, but two manifestations or a ways that God has appeared to us or related with us as humanity. One Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as a side note, I don't want to get into the weeds of this, but the word and in the Greek is the word chi. K-A-I. Chi. It's not in your curriculum. Chi. That word is actually can be translated as and, as it is in most of our English texts, or as even. E-V-E-N, such as, uh, well, let's just put it in our text. The only Lord God, even our Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what the text is doing is not separating two separate persons. It is pronouncing that this God has revealed himself as Jesus, which means the Lord God has become our Savior. Wow. Paul says in Ephesians 4 or 5, one Lord. Not two Lords, but one Lord. So there's not two. He's not expressing two. Now, thirdly, let's say this scripture was trying to reveal that there's two separate persons, right? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's not. 
it would, it would be inconsistent. Because if you read the New Testament, especially in the epistles, the letters that the apostles wrote, they will refer to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many has ever recognized that? You, re- you read the letters written by the apostles and you're like, whoa, you know, like, what's, what's that? <laughs> well, we're explaining that right now. But now think about this. If the Trinity was true, I'm not trying to be whatever, but snarky. Where's the Spirit, though? Like, in all of these times, the, the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about, I mean, the poor third person of the Trinity. Where is he at? He's always getting left out. This elusive spirit. Now, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek here, but when we get to it probably next week, it was actually a big problem. When they were formulating the Trinitarian belief in the 325 and 380 councils, when, when church leaders got together and they were like, how are we going to describe this? How are we going to word it? I mean, they spent days trying to figure out how they're going to word this. The second council in 380, the reason they got back together is they were like, well, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but they basically said, hey, we kind of d- fleshed out what God the Father and God the Son looks like, but we've, we've forgotten the Spirit. And so in the 380 council, they brought in basically the third person of the Trinity. You see, if you have this concept of God, you actually get yourself into kind of this troubled place, this murky water where it's like you see, okay, oh, God the Father, or the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're dealing with separate persons, we might have a problem here. The true purpose of this verse actually, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, teaches us not to overlook the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to remember that Jesus Christ is the flesh or that God has come in the flesh or in humanity. He's the very person of God himself made visible. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that God was manifest in the flesh. John 1.18, it says that no man has ever seen God at any time. Why? Because he's invisible, the Bible says, along with eternal and immortal. He's invisible. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared, meaning he's manifest or he has shown him. The physical manifestation of God that is visible to man is Jesus Christ. The only image that we can see of God is the, his express image, his flesh, Jesus Christ. In fact, for the most part, you, you'll find that if you even ask a Trinitarian, what will you see when you get to heaven? You know, if you, if you look at the book of Revelation, who will you see? Well, you'll see Jesus. Why? Because he's the visible manifestation, or the, what's visible of an invisible God. God is a spirit. The Bible actually never uses the term God the Son. Thus, the concept of two separate persons or individuals, God the Father, God the Son, is not founded or substantiated by Scripture at all. The Trinity doctrine states that Jesus is the second person in the Godhead. But Jesus, let's be honest, In the book of Revelation, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the first and the last. (laughs) 
Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. There can't be two first. Huh. But yet, Trinity teaching will say God is, the Father is the first person. Now, here's another uh, teaching or belief. The Trinity doctrine teaches that the Father and Son, as two separate persons, are co-equal. They're co-equal. Now, the Scripture, on the other hand, teaches us that the flesh of God or the Son of God was not equal to the Spirit of God. The flesh was limited, the Spirit unlimited. Why else would Jesus say in John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I? That's not co-equal. It's something else, but it's not co-equal. Jesus, as a man, was, he became hungry, thirsty, he got tired, he slept. As flesh, he voluntarily took these limitations upon himself as everlasting father, on the other hand, which a powerful scripture here is Isaiah 9, verse 6, that tells us that a son would be born, a child would be born, a son would be given, and his name would be called what? We, we, we say it every Christmas, right? Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting father. So what is this terminology? Jesus was called the son of God. When he is referred to as the son of God, it is referring to the fact that Jesus was fully God. It was referring to his deity, his, if you could say it this way, his godness, deity, his, his God nature. But Jesus was also called the son of Man, why? Because he was born of a woman. This was implying or showing us clearly that he was human. He was fully human, his humanity. Jesus was both God and man. In fact, I think it's imperative to say that he was fully God, yet he was also fully man, spirit and flesh. His dual nature is repeatedly revealed throughout his earthly ministry. Now, as flesh, Jesus was certainly not co-equal with the Father. However, the Apostle Paul reminds us that Jesus Christ was more than just mere flesh. He is also God incarnate. Philippians 2, 5, and 6, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form or the image of God, the appearance, the manifestation of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he was fully God come as a man. Since it would be inconsistent with John 14, 28, which says, where it records Jesus saying, the Father is greater than I, and Philippians 2, 5, and 6 to contradict each other, it becomes apparent that they are both referring to different aspects of Jesus Christ, who is fully God on the one hand, fully man on the other. Now, as flesh, Jesus Christ was not co-equal with God because the flesh placed those limitations upon him. He was not everywhere at the same time. Okay? But as spirit, as God manifests in the flesh, Jesus Christ, well, he was God. Let's look at the scriptural record. We find in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised him who raised Jesus from the dead. But look at what John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21 says. This is what Christ says. Jesus answered, said unto them, Destroy this temple, which he was referring to his body, it shows so in scripture, and three days I, 
Who's speaking? Jesus. Jesus says, I will raise up this body. Then said the Jews, 46 years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. Uh, here's another one, Luke eleven thirteen. 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So here we find that Jesus is saying that the Father will give you his spirit. But notice what it says also in John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient that I, Jesus, go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart... Jesus says, I will send him, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, to you. So on the one hand, we see the Father gives us the Holy Ghost. On the other hand, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Holy Ghost. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. So we find that the Father will raise up our bodies in the resurrection. But John 6, says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I, Jesus says, will raise him up at the last day. Now notice on the right-hand column, all three of those texts come from what gospel? John. Read the first chapter of John. Just the first 14 verses, or really just the first verse. You'll notice that John begins and is written very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You will notice that John is filled with Jesus saying, I am. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the bread of life. The reason why is because John was pointing out from the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We find in John that it is recorded that Jesus looks at Philip when he says, show us the Father, and he says, have I been so long with you, and you still don't know when you look at me, you're looking at the Father. John is written, the, la the, the last gospel written from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was the last gospel written, and John John made great detail in emphasizing Jesus' deity or the fact that Jesus was fully God. Luke paints the portrait of a perfect man. He's writing somewhat with the Gentile in mind. He's painting this beautiful portrait of the perfect man. Mark is showing the Romans that Jesus has all power. It's said in Mark, the last chapter, Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The Romans were obsessed with power. Power was their God. And so Mark wrote to that audience. And in Matthew, he wrote to the Jews because he wanted them to know that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And all throughout Matthew, you'll find it, this was done so that it might be fulfilled what was said of Jesus. But John, John says, let me make sure that you know that Jesus was not just man, but that he was God come in the flesh. And so we see how he paints this. Now, one, one more thing with the time that we have left is that the Trinity doctrine teaches that the Father and Son, they're separate persons, or as separate persons, they are co-eternal. That's your next blank. They are co-eternal, each having no beginning and no e ending. That's what eternal means. Now, the Bible 
teaches that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the flesh, had a definite beginning. The flesh began when it was begotten of the Father. Hebrews 1.5, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son this day. Everyone say this day. That means there was a day. There was a, a birthday. <laughs> there was a birthday. This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Do you know where the word begotten comes from, or maybe where we got the word begin or beginning, they are synonymous. They, there is a beginning, the only beginning of the Son of God. We find there's a definite beginning. In fact, you, when you read the genealogies of Scripture, it talks about how a father begot a child, gave had, had, there was a child that was conceived and given birth to. Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He cannot be both eternal and begotten, having a beginning. Jesus had an exact, definite birth. Before that time, the flesh of God, the humanity of God, the Son of God, did not exist except in the mind of God or as God. The only way he existed was in God's plan for salvation or for redemption for mankind. And everyone say amen. Well, I would love to keep going, but we will stop there for the sake of time, and we will pick up where we left off uh, next week. If you would like, you could leave your packets here, but you're welcome to take them with you. But if you want, uh, you can put your name on the top of the first page and just leave it up here on the altar, and, uh, and that would be great. Well, we'll make sure that they are here and ready for you next Wednesday night. Amen. Have we had a good time here in the house of God tonight? Have we learned something? We've learned something. Praise God. Why don't we stand together, and why don't we thank the Lord? Amen. Let's thank the Lord for his word. We don't have to be left to guessing games or to our own imaginations. I'm so thankful for truth. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the word of God that we have access to. It is available to us, oh Lord. And, and even beyond that, Lord, I'm thankful that we live in a country, Lord, where it's not illegal to have a Bible and to purchase a Bible and to share scripture the way we're doing tonight. I pray that we would not take this for granted because of its availability, but Lord, that we will treasure your word and Lord, that we will seek to know you in a greater and greater way. Oh Lord, I pray that you will go with our church family from this place and help us to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May your spirit of truth lead us and guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody say amen.